0: Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. shape people today we have a really exciting special episode um, in which we're we're turning the tables on one of our lovely hosts so in this episode <laughs> I'm going to interview the lovely Sinead and to most of our listeners I don't think Sinead needs much of an introduction but I'm going to give her one anyway. Oh um, <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> So as you, as our listeners all probably know, Sinead is the author of um, three absolutely fantastic middle grade novels, The Eye of the North, The Starspun Web and Skyborne. Um, And we'll talk in much more detail about those three novels um, over the course of of this conversation. Um, So she's also the author of The Raven's Call, which is part of the HarperCollins Big Cat reading scheme. And I'm going to um, talk to her about her forthcoming novel, the, which is the fantastically titled Time Tider, although she probably won't be able to tell us too much about that. A little bit. A little I'll, bit. sneaking in a tidbit here and there. <laughs> and basically what I'm going to do for you, for the benefit of all our listeners, and but also mainly for my benefit, is I'm going to get all of Sinead's writing secrets out of her. There aren't any. <laughs> oh no no! <laughs> I'm making it all up as I go. <laughs> sure, that's what we all do. That's what we all do. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's going to be slightly different from our normal story shaped episode. So I'm not going to focus primarily on what stories have shaped you, although that will be part of the episode. But I want to talk more about your books and your writing process, and of course, the stories that have influenced your books and your writing process will will come into that. Um, but welcome, Sinead. How are you feeling about being grilled by me?
1: Thank you very much, Susan. And I feel like I have uh, failed to prepare for a test or that I'm in a dream where you've, you know, you've revised your geography and you go in and it's a history test instead or something like that. That's good so dream. I hope I hope that I can I uh, uh, hope I can live up to the billing and that I, I can fulfill all of your uh, wonderful questions uh, accurately and as fully as I can. Um and that I can also give some help to our listeners or uh you know if we have any listeners among the podcast our podcast fans who are you know wanna be writers or if they're aspiring authors um or just authors because you know if you're aspiring you're an author um I hope that I can be of, of help and also we're we're kind of recording this episode as a bonus for Irish Book Week as well so it's to also celebrate Irish Book Week uh, we are both Irish authors um me and Susan both and uh, so this is a great way to say. You, it's Irish Book Week. What a wonderful week it is. <laughs> what a wonderful week.
0: Happy Irish Book Week, everyone. <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about some of my favourite Irish books, which are your books, tonight. Um, oh my and, gosh. Um, I want to, I want to start blushing. by asking you, <laughs> you're going to probably blush a lot of I'll probably just turn into one big giant red lump
1: <laughs> of embarrassment.
0: <laughs> um. But I want to start by, I want to start at the beginning. I want to start by asking, well, probably not, well, our beginning. The beginning of your writing career, because basically the last time I saw you in person would have probably been <laughs> in UCD, probably around the end of our PhDs. Incredible um, how long ago that is. Yeah, let's not think about that. But no, then yeah. I went off to Canada and yeah. you took a different path. You became children's writer and your first book was the eye of the north so mm -hmm. i wanted to start there i wanted to start by asking you to talk us through how the eye of the north came about
1: okay well i suppose i should begin by saying there was probably something like a decade between the point where we left each other in ucd and me actually becoming published as a children's author that was a that was a long time to fill with uh, working in various different jobs, I did loads of different things during that time. I worked, you know, in offices. I worked as a, I suppose what you could call it, an archivist, even though it wasn't really technically an archivist. But that's what it was. Um, essentially, um, I worked in a bookshop, which was a great job. Um, did loads of different things, and it was always trying to sort of find a path that was right for me. And I, I knew really where my path was, but I was kind of too
0: afraid to um
1: to start walking it.
0: <laughs> um, did you like? Did you want to be? like when did you first become aware that you wanted to be a writer was that was that a childhood ambition or was it something that kind of crept up on you later or I feel like it was probably there all along
1: yeah well what was what was there all along for me was um uh the desire to have a creative life when I was about Mm. I suppose nine or ten which is like a pivotal age you know for most people um nine ten nine ten eleven you know when you're kind of forming your ideas about yourself and who you are and, and what you want I guess um I wanted. I knew something in my head. One day, I woke up and said, I, "I want a creative life," but I didn't know what exactly uh, I meant by that. Um, I was also I loved art, and I still I still love art, and I love to I love to draw. Um, and I kind of thought maybe I'll become an artist. Um, I also love music. I love to sing, and I played a few instruments at the time. And I said maybe I'll become a musician. Um, but uh, but really, my top my top love was and I had always been stories, um, and and books, and writing, um. But like a lot of us, you know, when we're when you're young, you don't you don't see writing books as something you can do. You don't see author yeah. as a job that you can do. Um, I think we were speaking about this on the podcast recently, um, with with a guest as well. It was like um, authors are are people who are either dead or famous or American or British or or whatever. So when you're when you're a little girl growing up in a working class family in a small town in Wexford in the eighties, you don't think of yourself as being a person who could ever possibly potentially write a story. That anybody else would want to read, or that it would ever be a potential job for you, um. And also, I'm from a, I'm very proudly from a family of of you know working class people who who um. Most of my family, I was the first person in my family to go to university. I did have a cousin before me who went to, who went to a college to do a, a third level sort of a, a qualification as well. But I was the first university graduate in the family. My brother followed in my footsteps then, and we've both become. Um, he he went on to do graduate study as well, um. <clears throat> So, you know, I kind of was I, I knew I wanted different things to maybe what had gone before, you know, that my my family was full of people who had always stayed in the hometown that we had, that we that I grew up in. Um, I, uh, funnily for Ireland in the 80s, and not a lot of my not a lot of my family emigrated, you know, a lot of people in at that time were leaving Ireland to go and find work mm. abroad. But for whatever reason, most of my uncles and aunts and my older cousins, and all they all sort of stayed around the area um, or stayed in Ireland at least um but they and they were all very happily you know living their lives working their jobs and and that kind of thing but I knew I wanted something different and I didn't know what shape it was going to take um and I also didn't have uh I didn't have an example to follow I didn't have somebody who I could point to and go okay well uncle whatever did Mm -hmm. this so I I can do that as well um so for a long time I kind of dithered between not knowing uh what to do and you know you go just go when you're going through your teenage years I I started work when I was 14 you know I was you know busy with school busy with my Saturday job busy with just living life getting through um and over time I kind of realized that while I was good at singing and music and while I was good at drawing I wasn't as good at them as I I, the passion for stories was stronger you know Uh,
0: did you Um, did you write when you were young or did you tell stories was that was that some? Because I know you know a lot of writers say, "Oh, I always like I was writing from when I could pick up a pen."
1: Uh, only, only to myself.
0: I mean, the first thing I remember writing um, was uh, when I
1: was when I was seven, uh, which again it was another pivot age for me because I, I met a lot of really important books at that age. Seven, seven, eight. I read a book called uh, *The Little Prince*, <clears throat> as everyone knows, by by Antoine de Saint Exupery, who, and that's an amazing book for many reasons but one of the first things i ever remember writing was a sequel to the little prince oh, so i was you have it I was, um i don't anymore i went oh. looking for it years ago and it's it has disappeared in the detritus of my of my life and it's really sad because i wish i still had it um it was just i think i had about four pages uh, or five pages maybe i kind of ran out of plot which happens still <laughs> plot as <laughs> um, hard that is hard, but I, I knew I had, I, I wanted to tell the story of when the little prince came came back to earth. I wanted him to come back and and, and meet his friend, the the pilot again and, and what would happen. um. But that's basically all, all I had in terms of the idea. I didn't know what would happen after that, <laughs> but I, I even did my own illustrations because I said, if the person who made this book can do their own illustrations, so can I. So I did my exactly. own illustrations and. You know, but I think I think the sad thing about that story is I think I remember feeling really ashamed of it when I was done. I felt like oh no. I think I, I think I had this image in my head of, of feeling like oh this is not good enough. I'm going to put this put this away, which oh, is so probably you were why a writer it's lost from
0: the very beginning.
1: I think so. Yeah, I think I was very self critical even to start, but um, I think that's might be why it's it's been lost because I oh. I might have lost it myself. I might have put okay. it somewhere knowing I'd never find it again, or thro- I might have even thrown it away. But I do remember making it, and I remember feeling like this is an amazing thing. I've I've You know, it's not my character, but I've made a new story for this character. And it's something that I found I found really intriguing, you know, so that was it was in my head always since I was since I was that age. But it was not wasn't until I was about 20, 21 and working in a job that I really didn't like. I was working in an office um, and uh, I found it very difficult and very hard. And I was very uh, it was a very hard time in my life personally. Um, But an idea that I had sort of had in my head for a while sort of started to take root um and it became eventually it became the eye of the north you know something like 17 or 18 years later um when the book was published but in its very first sort of in the very first seeds of that idea it was very different this the character was older um her name her name was Emma rather than Emmeline um and she was I think she was 16 and I guess I guess what I was trying to do was write a YA novel because that was kind of what I thought of being as that's what I thought I was going to to write you know I I thought it was going to be that's that's that was, that was the genre or the age group I was going to fit into. But it was only after kind of trying to write it and trying to sort of get through it that I realized, no, actually, this is not a YA idea. It's a, it's it's going to be a children's book. And I was just, it was like a relief came over me because I loved children's books. Um, But I, I, it took a long time for me to sort of think of this as being a, a viable or as, as being a respectable or as being a sort of a, a realistic thing for, for me to, to want to do. Um, I also wrote another story at the same time. I kind of had this idea of a it, it was it was basically a pastiche of everything I loved in stories. So there was bits of Lord of the Rings in it. There was bits of Anne of Green Gables in it. There was bits of uh, oh, Enid wow. Bracken in it. There was bits of everything in it. Um, you know, and I often I, I, I look back at it now. I kind of go whenever I ran out of plot, the characters would sing a song, you know, and I would kind of, you know, to write, write the words of the song out. And they kind of you know did, diddly out their way through the countryside for a while until I thought of something <laughs> else to write. And then, they'd, you know, but I remember one scene, there was a scene where they were they were going across a moat for some reason. They were going or they were going to an island, I think. And there was like a, you know, a current of water all around the island. And there was one of the characters in it was called Sir Sir Topaz. And Sir Topaz is a character <laughs> from the Canterbury Tales, who Susan, I remember from her university days. Um, And that, that was his name. And he, he had a mandolin that he loved more than his own life. And he and he was the one who used to take it out the mandolin and sing every so often, he'd, you know, Sir Topaz a do a song. And uh, I remember writing the scene where he had to go across this water to the island and he had to hold up the mandolin over his head because he was terrified it was going to get swept away. And uh, the scene where, you know, that he got deeper and deeper into the water and he got lower and lower and oh lower no. down. The mandolin was getting closer and closer to the water. And I was just I just for some reason, that's the one that's, that's the that's the the image that sticks out in my head. You know, that it was really fun to write that scene. And I also had a character in it um, who was called Air uh, Airstapa, which is the old English word for earth stepper uh, or a or, or wanderer. But of course, he was totally a pastiche of Strider, you know, Aragorn from The Lord of the Rings. He was completely just my like fan fiction version of him. <laughs> um so there was loads of there was loads of my of my medievals because I, I did mm-hmm. a PhD and I hadn't done it at that I hadn't done it at that time but it was it was in my in my heart this love for medieval stories and literature um so I had loads of um medieval romance tropes in it as well when I look back now it's such a it's such a patchwork of just everything I loved you know but the one thing it did have was that it had a beginning it had a middle and it had an end and I it was I mean it was rubbish but it, it was the first thing I wrote that actually I took it from start to finish and I was like oh,
0: we did it! I did, did it? You know. wrote a novel. It, it sounds. I, I'm sorry. I'm here for a Lord of the Rings and of Green Gables mashup. <laughs> that sounds. I can't amazing. even understand <laughs> where
1: <laughs> where the joins of that are. But you know they are there. Um, it's it's oh it's funny. Um, and uh, yeah, God. I, so I still have it. It's inside in the sitting room in my house here in a in a plastic bag. The printout of it's kind of in a plastic bag. And I I haven't had the guts to reread it or I haven't had the courage to 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 re- look at it for many years. But maybe one day I'll just take a deep breath and oh, sit yeah. down and read it again because no, I hope you resurrect that some of that. <laughs> well, actually, it's 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 funny because I do have a, I can't speak about it really, but there is a, I have forthcoming piece of work, which next year I'll be able to talk about more. But there is uh there's a there's a little tiny detail from my this first completed book I wrote, which mm-hmm. was called Immorial Imor- for those who want to know. Oh. Uh, it was called Immorial, and there's a little tiny scene in that book where we have um uh flowers showing a character the way to go, uh, and that oh. that little that little scene stayed in my head for all those years, and I did I did reuse that tiny tiny little detail in another book, which will which will be published which is which is kind of an amazing thing for my my little 21 year old self who only had only had dreams of ever writing anything that anybody else would want to read so
0: you know I look back and I, I look back at that at that girl and say you know good for you absolutely good for you it's a hard thing to write a beginning middle and end complete a novel yeah and I mean that's I mean that's what we do isn't it we use all of our mash up all of our influences we put you have a lovely phrase that I I think you've used on the podcast before that cauldron of creativity cauldron
1: of creativity yeah just
0: all that stuff goes into that cauldron of creativity and comes out in this unexpected ways unexpected ways yeah yeah but um so you had so you're you're in your 20s you have this novel emorial emorial was the first the first completed one yeah what happens then what happened then
1: was uh, life got in the way.
0: <laughs> um, what did you do with that novel? Then,
1: did you try and... No, no, gosh, do many no, no. I, that, no. All I did with it was finish it because I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know why. I actually can't explain even to this day where the impetus to write that book or what I did it for. I don't know why I, you know, like now i suppose with the with the perspective of old age <laughs> i can look back and go i did it because i wanted to show myself i could do yeah. it you know but even when i was writing the story i knew that i would never do anything in terms of um publication with it i didn't write it to be published i didn't write it to get myself an agent i didn't write it because i i actually didn't know how public public the publishing industry worked back then mm-hmm. i i wouldn't have had much um knowledge of how to get an agent or what to actually do with the published manuscript or sorry a finished manuscript but I knew that wasn't what I did it for. I did it because I wanted to show my seven, eight year old self from my my little house in my little town, living her, her little life. I wanted to show her, you can do this. This is something that you can do. Um, you know, yes, you're only you're only a girl from from Gory, County Wexford. Great, great town. I recommend it highly. Everyone needs to go and see Gory at least once. <laughs> <laughs> Hot spot um but yes you are you are only a girl from that town um but at the same time you are a girl who can do this as well Mm. um and that's literally what it means to me that's probably why I have never read it before because I never read it again because I, I probably get overwhelmed with everything that it means to me like I mean it's it's from the point of view of a book it's utterly unworkable uh but from the point of view of what it means to me personally it's something that I want to keep forever because it it showed me that you know this dream is not completely and totally beyond you it's something that you can do um and this is not the book that's going to make you but if it's a book that you can start and finish then it's something you can do again and you can get a better mm-hmm. idea and you can you can make you can do this again and you know it's something that it's something that I've, I've kept with me all those years like it's something I've never lost you know when you move house when you're renting or whatever you move from one place to another all the time in your 20s and that kind of thing life is a bit chaotic at times but this, this book in its plastic bag has stayed with me. (laughs) It's like the first thing I pack (laughs) when I go anywhere. Um, you know, and that's because it's, it's deeply significant personally. Um, even though I don't think anybody else will ever read it, possibly not even you, Susan, I'd say you'd probably probably get to page
0: five before you'd go, Oh my God. Yeah. I see what you mean. Put this away. (laughs) Um, No, but I suppose that gives you, uh, that gives you a certain amount of confidence then when you're kind of you're thinking about the or when the seeds of the ideas that will become the eye of the north that you've already completed you like you've finished a novel even if nobody else reads it mm-hmm. you've done it you've done it for yourself and you've proved that to yourself that you can yeah. start yeah. something and finish a novel because so many people start novels and never finish them
1: that's it exactly yeah so, so I, look, I look back now and I go fair play to that 21 year old me you know I did it and I, I didn't really know why but now I I Something was driving me, I guess something mm-hmm. bigger than than a conscious decision <laughs> was driving me to finish it. So
0: and so then, where did the seeds of um
1: the eye of the North come from? The eye of the North came from the fact that I was working in an office um and the job was really hard, and I felt very isolated. um and it also wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I kind of felt like, oh, I'm stuck here now. What'll I do? How am I going to move on to the next stage? So the story of the Eye of the North, which as I say was completely different. Um, I if anyone has read The Eye of the North, you might be aware that there's there's an organization in it called Oscar, um, the Office for the Sighting and Cataloguing of the, of the Anomalous and Rare is what the, the, the acronym stands for. Um and in the original version of the Eye of the North, we had a girl called Emma who was 16, and she was actually working in the office uh of the sighting and cataloging <laughs> of the Anom- of anomalous and rare. And uh, she, instead of sitting at the desk, you know, cataloging all these amazing things coming in from all over the world, like all the explorers would send in, you know, bits and pieces of animals they had discovered or, you know, a sample of this tree from here or a sample of volcanic rock from wherever. And she'd have to find a place in her storeroom and like label them and catalog them and keep her records up to date. And she was just bored, silly with this job. <laughs> and she wanted to be an explorer instead. And so she, she wanted to go out on the field, but she, she wasn't allowed to because she was a girl. And... Uh, one day they had uh, they had they had dispatched their you know their their top explorer he had gone up to the north of the world Greenland or somewhere I suppose it's the Arctic Circle and uh, one day he sent back this gigantic box like a, a gigantic box and it was full of a sample and it was obviously it was Emma's job to open it so she opened up this box and found there was a gigantic eye inside the box and it was an, with it was a note saying this is the eye of the mythical kraken you know I have I have um. I have dispatched this creature and blah, 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 whatever. And, uh, but Emma knew enough about her job at that stage to know this is not a kraken's eye. This is the eye of a whale. She kind of knew there was something wrong. She said, this guy's telling us porcupines. I want to know why he's lying. Why did he say that he has discovered uh, a kraken when in fact he is trying to pull the wool over our eyes? So she um she basically leaves her job and stows away on a ship and uh, and goes off to find out what's going on up the north of the world and I forgot to that point I only got to the point where she leaves the job and stows away on the ship um and on the board on the ship um as in the plan I originally had for that story she she meets a boy or you know like a teenage boy he would have been at then who was working on the ship he was working in the kitchens and he didn't have a name and he called himself deor which is the old English word for animal uh, deor it means oh. beast you know um, so, like anyone who's read *The Ice of the North*, can see there are similarities straight yeah. away. Like there's the the, the ship, the mm-hmm. stoic going away on a ship. There's meeting a boy with no name. Um, there is this sense of you know uh, wanting to achieve scientifically, you know, something that had been denied to to the character. Um, there's the importance of the eye. Uh, there's the presence of the kraken. Um, uh, but like nearly everything else in that story has has changed or ha- or evolved. Or, you know, when I when I age the character down from 16 to maybe 11 or 12. Um, things just kind of seemed to click more, okay, into place. But it took me, I like, I swear, when I the first sort of initial maybe ten thousand words of that story, I literally had them in a computer file. I don't even know if I have them anymore because you know, you know, you change devices, you change computers over the years. I don't know where they are. I didn't ever print them out, um, and. All I remembered was like, but I still remember the basics of the plot because they were they were so familiar to me. Um, but when I came to rewrite the story uh, back in two thousand and fourteen, I think I sat down to sort of finally say, right, I'm going to do this. Or maybe it was mm-hmm. twenty thirteen. It was a good while ago, anyway. Um, I was planning out another book completely, a story which I still haven't written actually, but I might do someday. And uh, I said, right, okay, this is what I'm. I was actually for Nano Remo. This is what I this is how the book got its beginning. Um, so National Novel Writing Month in November every year, people pledged to write 50,000 words in a month, which is a great way to kickstart a novel if you're yeah. considering doing it. I recommend it. Um, so I had sat down and I had planned out the book I was going to write. I hadn't written any words of it. I wasn't cheating, <laughs> but um, it was it was actually Halloween, October 31st, so the day before Nanarimo began. And I had done a kind of a, like a structure, like a like a tree structure for, this, for the book. Um, and uh, I was like, great, this is my story. I'm going to do this tomorrow. This is all fine. And then suddenly, as I got up from my desk to finish work for the day, a little voice started talking in my head. Or in it's like like a, like a voice was whispering into my ear, and the voice said, "For as long as she could remember, Emmeline Widget had been sure her parents were trying to kill her." I, such and a said, good line. And then I said, "That's a voice. I want to listen to what's yeah. what is this?" You know, and I literally sat with my pencil in my hand or my pen in my hand and wrote out what that voice said for about, about four pages. I had four pages of Fool's Cap when I was finished, and I was like, "Okay, this is this is something," and so the, the next day when I wanted to start my NaNoWriMo I literally sat down and typed up what I had written the previous day and then Mm -hmm. I continued Um, and I think the following January I had uh, a 90,000 word first draft was it January December it was it was a couple of months anyway um I had I had a I had a 90,000 word because I had no kids then Uh, you know (laughs) that 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 does help there was there was nothing to distract me from my 12 hour (laughs) hyper-focused days of writing it was brilliant um, and so not, yeah but, but I think it was actually more I think it was 94,000 words wow. I think it was the first draft and I, I had do, I had done enough research by then into the sort of children's books field to know that that was too long
0: yeah my <laughs> first know, that draft I, I needed was uh, that... 90,000 as
1: well yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's funny isn't it when you kind of you kind of you just get so caught up in the story but it's it's the first and only time in my career so far that I've ever just had an idea that just kind of like I, I liken it just to you know I don't know whether this is too gross like you know popping a spot you know what I mean it just kind of like it just kind of goes bang and the whole story kind of just goes out I suppose it had been like percolating in you for so long that's exactly it and had been there all those years and when I remember when I when I wrote it when I was working through it I realized Emmeline was Emma the previous Mm. from the previous and and this and that the story wasn't about the, the office of Oscar because in the in the eye of the north as it is now it's Emmeline's mum and dad who work for Oscar but it's not it's not as you know it's not as on the page as much as it would have been in the in the original version of the story um it's just it's it's a it's a it's a place that's that exists in the world that Emmeline is in but it's still important to the plot um but when I realized that uh that this had been there all these years from so I think it was it must have been like 15 16 years you know that i had just kind of been sitting sitting in my brain uh waiting for its moment <laughs> and then out it, out it came and um and that was that was it was amazing um to, to finally get it out but the, but it is funny i look back there was a couple of scenes in the eye of the north that i i didn't know how they were going to end until i wrote them um like there was there was a scene at the at the end of the book there's a there's a like a showdown scene between There's a baddie called the North Witch and she's about to. I love
0: love her so
1: much. (laughs) She was great. She's so brilliant. Thank you. Um, there's a scene where she has she has taken uh, one of the adult characters hostage. So she has Sasha in her arms, or kind of she has kind of taken her over her body, basically. And Sasha is suspended over 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 a pool where the Kraken is about to rise. And we have uh, Edgar, another adult character, you know, getting his gun out. And then Emmeline and Thing are Emily and Thing, the boy, uh, her friend, are trying to sort of see what are we going to do. And everyone, it's like I, it's like I stopped at that at that tableau of all the characters around this pool in Greenland, and I'm like don't know what's going to happen now. No idea. And I sat down the next day and literally just wrote the end of the scene. And it was like, there you go. That's what that what was. That's what, that was what was going to happen. But it was it was an incredibly. Um, I can't. You. I don't know whether euphoric is the right word. It was the most unusual writing experience I've ever had. And I it's probably nothing. It's probably not one I'm ever going to have again um it I think writing the eye of the north was like a unique moment in my creative life that this uh this book just wanted to be told and it, mm. and it, and I I was the right I suppose vessel <laughs> or whatever to tell it but it's it's not because it's not that it came to me from anybody like it didn't come to me from outer space or whatever It it is it came from my own my own it came from your whole life. Yeah. but it came from yeah it came from everything that I had loved it came from everything I had poured into myself from my earliest childhood it came from every dream and every ambition I'd ever had it came from every storytelling urge I'd ever felt Mm. um and it just happened at the right moment that I had the time and space which is a huge privilege um you know and it's not something everybody gets afforded uh I had the time I had the space I had the support around me to sit down and actually let it out and hence we have a book that I'm still very proud of um, you know, there's obviously, as I think one of our previous guests said, you know, I think it was Elizabeth Murray, who said, you know, when you look back at your first book, you, there are things you would change, you know, but at the same time, it is it is the first book that you've written. Um, and, you know, it's 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 a moment of I did this. Yeah, <laughs> this and is, this is the something book that- I made.
0: It made you, know, you an author as well. Yeah, like exactly. You birthed a book, but the book birthed you as...
1: Exactly. Well, that's an a great way of putting it. Yeah, wow, exactly. I have this, I love this this uh, phrase. I, I, I say it to people all the time is, you know, uh, we we create stories, but they create us as well. Mm. Stories create us as much as we create them, you know, and, and that's absolutely true of me and the Eye of the North anyway. So I mean, I look back now and I go, yeah, I would tighten this scene here, or I would change that bit there, or I would maybe change the wording in this sentence here. But overall, um, I'm really proud of the Eye of the North, and uh, it came from a very deep and personal place, um, and it means a lot to me, and
0: I'm very proud to see it on shelves. And, I think yeah. it's perfect. It is well, th- such well, a you. brilliant novel. I remember reading it for the first time, <laughs> just being like, wow. Wow I know her I know that <laughs> writer <laughs> I'm just feeling so proud of you Oh, well,
1: thank you I'm and I, la- you. I
0: also want I want to ask you about um the setting the north because I just mm-hmm. I love there's something about stories set in the north th- that are just so magical so at what point did you know that it was going to be a novel that was going to take us to that like frozen cold magical north and uh, what does what does the north mean to you?
1: Isn't it funny because it's the same with me i've always had a fascination with with the north um polar regions um Mm. i think i said to you possibly in one of our first episodes that you know from from my earliest childhood like i was fascinated by reading stories of polar explorers um and um just just imagining how it would feel to be you know in a frozen landscape or to be on, on a dog sled or to be sort of you know trying to find ways to get food or trying to hunt penguins or whatever it might be that you had to do um and those those stories of survival and 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 bravery and whatever oh just they just grabbed my imagination as a kid um you know I suppose because like like a lot of people who grew up to be authors like a lot of people in general I loved reading stories but I also love I, I loved reading facts I loved reading encyclopedias we had encyclopedias at home I was the kind of kid who'd read the dictionary for fun, you know, because that was <laughs> nothing better than than finding out what, what words mean and how they are connected to each other. I mean, that's a good, like it's good training for a writer, really. Absolutely, yes, and a medievalist also because we mm. do a lot of word, you know, work on etymology and where words come from. Um, but it's uh, it's it's just something that I was fascinated by. Like you know, nowadays you can go into a Wikipedia hole, you know, you, you know it's easy to get get into research holes when you have the internet to rely on. But back in the dim dark eighties, when all we had was books, you know, it was a bit more difficult. But still, I managed, you know, to to sort of get stuck into reading and reading and reading about the same thing, you know. Like so, I'd I'd start with one one account of of a, a polar exploration, and then I kind of go on to another one, and I go on to another one, and until I just felt like I was living in, you know greenland um so yeah i've never been to the the arctic region it's something i'd love to do it's on my bucket list uh and the older i get the <laughs> the more i have to sort of really get moving on that <laughs> it's, it's one of my ambitions to see the the northern lights oh um, yeah i'd no. love to do that you know it's it's one thing i've never done but it's like it's just a a lifelong fascination with me um and like I suppose from the beginnings of this story from the very start of this of the story seed you know when we had emma working in the offices of oscar it was always somebody sent back something from from the north the frozen north i don't think it was necessarily greenland i think it was actually svalbard that i had planned originally to set it in because i think um I had seen something or read something about that region. And I I think it was, I think it was svalbard was where I had decided to to set it. But that didn't, it didn't, uh, that didn't make it into the original. uh, I went for Greenland in in, in the end. Um, And probably for no other reason other than the fact I'm fascinated by Greenland. And I think it's a great place and I'd love to see it someday. There's probably no deeper reason than that. (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, to me, the North is magic. To me, the North frozen regions of the world are just... I, I hate to say it's the landscape of my soul because it might make me seem very kind of, you know, cold and remote and frozen, but like it's just the majesty and the expanse and the, 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 the clarity and the freedom and the the beauty of it, I suppose. Mm. It, oh, has a beautiful always way of putting it. To me.
0: The clarity yeah. and the expanse. I love that. Yeah,
1: and I was hoping to try and, get that across i mean somebody i don't know who it was now somebody read the eye of the north and got in touch with me to say that um he said i think it was a man he said to me have you have you when when did you go to greenland i'm like i've never been he's like oh my god well i was there last year and you've got it down to a t and i'm like well that's great because all i'm going on is you know youtube and um books (laughs) you know so it's nice to know i did manage to capture some of the spirit of the region in, in this in this reader's opinion anyway so
0: And I'm also Mm -hmm. thinking about, I'm thinking about Emmeline, but I'm also thinking about Emma in her office, trying to like being really bored by her job and Mm -hmm. Sinead in her office being really bored by her job and little Sinead and gory, like want that. there's this drive to go beyond your circumstances and maybe the North, that kind of expansive, spacious clarity of the North speaks to something in that desire to go beyond
1: that absolutely it yeah there you go so you can tell you can tell you're a trained academic Susan, you have this, <laughs> the precision of your analysis is spot on again there that's yeah that's probably what it is it never occurred to me in that precise way but I'd say that's probably it yeah you know going to you know looking to it as, as the extent of what's possible maybe or this is where i want to go because this is as far as you can go yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. The, the idea you know ultimate fool that idea you know back to my medieval studies again you know the, the the part the place on the map where you can't go any further than this this is the mm-hmm. most northerly that you can go um yeah And kind of the most blank it's almost like a blank page like well. a blank
0: page
1: yeah Tab- tabula rasa well i mean mm. except for the fact that there are people who've lived there for thousands of years and yeah, and yeah. it's not a it's not a blank page for, from that point of view um you know i also one of the things i was concerned with in the guy of the north actually was was being respectful to mm. indigenous people you know yeah. and I, I i very much hope i i did um did manage to achieve that because to me the character of, of iggy Mac the the, the, again, in, the Inuit hunter I love him great and, character yeah he was always somebody I, I wanted him to be a hero of the piece you know i wanted him to be somebody who was really important to the overall plot of the story um but also just a bit of gentle kind of, I suppose, comic relief in one sense, but also a bit of a bit of gentle support for for the character of Thing, who has been very much on his own, um, and who has felt him, felt abandoned and felt um alone, um, and I think meeting Igimak was was important for for the two of them to kind of connect with each other, um, and yeah, Igimak means a lot to me.
0: You know, he's a wonderful character, and I think you do that brilliantly. That sense of there are these people who want to go to this place, who see it like a kind of blank paper or, or a place that they can exploit, but mm-hmm. there is this whole history and there's people who live there and people who rely on on this landscape. And um, I think you you bring that that those issues of environmentalism mm-hmm. and um, of greed and corruption and trying to exploit other people's landscape. You do that brilliantly. Well, thank you. That was a really important because uh, the, the, the environmental theme was.
1: I suppose it was it's kind of a it's a sub theme perhaps in some ways, but it it was important to me too to to bring that in, you know, the idea that um like the Greenland glacier and the glaciers in various parts of the world they are being destroyed, you not for the same reason as they are in the book, and it's not as easily fixed as it is in the area of the north. But yes, yeah, so the I mean the environmental theme for me is important as well. It's not um I don't I don't handle it with as much depth skill as some, someone like Nicola Penfold, for instance, whose whose books are all about ecology and, and human interplay with ecology, but it is something that Personally, uh, uh, sort of concerns me, and I'd love to make that a bigger theme in some of my future work as well.
0: And then, so, so you, the Eye of the North gets published and it's very successful, mm-hmm. and then your next book is the Starspun Web. So you leave the frozen north, and you're you're back in home territory. But Mm. not quite home territory. Not quite home territory. So, talk to me about the beginnings of the Starspun Web and the inspirations behind the Starspun Web. And if you want to, what it felt like to have a book published and write a second book.
1: Yeah, well, the Starspun Web uh, came about because the editor I had in the US at the time, who worked for Nuff Books for Young Readers in New York, uh, she said to me, we want a second book. Um, Well, rather, I had a two book deal, but she said for for the second book, we want a book that has a different time setting. We want a book with more kids in it. And uh, we want either a sports team or a school or something like that. Um, she wanted a book, I think, that was a lot of books these days. Um, you, you see it, it's kind of a very common trope now in middle grade books is the idea of a, of a school where kids are competing against each other and they are all competing with the same prize, mm. um, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I actually don't really jive with that sort of, that kind of trope Uh, i they're not stories that i normally enjoy reading you know even though some of them are really skillfully done um and it wasn't one i wanted to write either but when she said to me we're looking for a different time period um i suggested i said to her well how about the 1940s and she said okay uh she said the war and i'm like okay um i said but how about maybe not uh the war in a in a in a setting that we would be used to seeing it so not a US setting not a European setting and not a UK setting how about we go for Ireland um and she's like okay because like most people she doesn't know a whole lot about or didn't know a whole lot about Ireland uh and its role which you know it did have a role um in the second world war um but basically as soon as as soon as I had the setting I said right okay, 1940s and I said Dublin 1940s Dublin um as soon as I had that setting in my head the story just kind of came to me now I had to, I had already had a book in my in my head and I forget now what it was called it did have a name and I forget what it was but um it it had a character called Tess with yeah. a pet tarantula called Violet um it also had a boy called Wilf who was uh, who was a delivery boy who used to come to like Tess and her uncle Herbert lived in a big house and Herbert was a was an inventor um and Wilf was a delivery boy who used to come every Tuesday with you know bits and pieces for Herbert from all over the world or bits of you know tools or whatever he needed, and uh, he and he and Tess weren't really friends. They kind of annoyed each other, uh, and uh, there was a good bit of banter and, and fun between them. Um and then Herbert uh, goes missing and he sends Tess uh, he sends Tess a parcel with something really mysterious in it, um or rather Wilf delivers it to the house and Tess realizes it's a warning so she has to get out, um and. I forget then where the plot was going to go, but like that was basically that was the pit, the second book I pitched them, and they're like, "It's a bit too similar to The Eye of the North," which the which they said we do like certain aspects of it, including, um, the characters. The characters are great, mm. and I said, "Okay," um. But as soon as as soon as Melanie, the editor in Knopf, gave me this the idea to to or gave me the I suppose the parameters, you know, we want more kids, we want a school, we want um, or you know, some kind of a place where there are more kids, more kid characters, um, and we want um, uh, you know we wanted to keep the, the character of Tess and whatever. I just kind of thought of the story for the, for the starspin web. And I remember emailing my agent, Polly, and saying, does this sound familiar to you? This, this story that I've just outlined in this email, does it sound like an episode of Doctor Who or a book that you've read? <laughs> because it just seemed to make sense to me. Like, it's, when, as, soon as, I had the, as soon as I had the setting and the character of Tess and her pet tarantula and, um, and um, uh, the, you know, the idea that it was going to be in Dublin, it just, the story that I wanted to tell sort of unfolded um and Polly said no it doesn't sound better to me just write and we'll see we'll see where you go and it wasn't the same experience as the Eye of the North because it hadn't been a story that had been percolating in my brain for 20 years so it didn't come out in such a big splodge <laughs> it was mm-hmm. much more much more hard work um it took a lot of drafting um I think and because it was so it was such a tight deadline too. um I had only I think 13 or 14 months between the publication of or between the between the hand in rather of the Eye of the North manuscript final manuscript and the publication of the Saracen Web. Oh wow! And I think the book was written in. I think I had did three or four drafts, like full drafts from from page one. <laughs> you know, in that time, and also I had a small a small child then. So I look back now, and I go I I go I don't and how I managed to do all that, but I did. Um, and it was just I suppose the, again like the Eye of the North. The one thing that my books all have in common, I always say to kids in school visits too, is that they all feature things that I loved or was fascinated by when I was a kid and the things that turned up in the uh, in the stars web would include the the Tunguska event in mm-hmm. uh, in Russia in which I had been fascinated by all my was life that I came across as well. it from an encyclopedia <laughs> as well I remember looking at the picture the photograph that maybe people are familiar with of the trees that were flattened for thousands of kilometers around the, the I'd never of the, heard the of site. that until I read your book had you not no oh my gosh amazing I used to be just looking at these trees going oh my god what was big enough to do that to trees like it's incredible so and i used to read you know accounts of it there was a book i had that had an, had a first-hand account from somebody living in st petersburg i think it was who talked about the the color of the sky changed and the, the the flash of light and the sound of it and the fact that buildings you know the windows just shattered in buildings you know and it just sounded like the most incredible thing to witness and to live through and to think that it happened in you know I suppose not not so much living memory but you know not beyond far beyond living memory um it was always something that was in my head so I kind of knew that was going to come into it somewhere um and I had always been also fascinated with other other realities or diff- different mm-hmm. worlds um I can't really point to any particular reason why that was uh, just it uh, was just a general interest of mine but it's funny how sometimes when I do school business especially El-adore. in the UK El-adore, that's possibly it yes um but sometimes in school business in the UK, kids come up to me and say, were you like really a big fan of Doctor Who? Did you watch Doctor I says, no, I never watched Doctor Who because we didn't have BBC when I yeah, was a kid. Neither. So a lot of people say to me, oh, you're taking your stories from Doctor Who. I'm like, I'm literally not because I had no familiarity with that when I was a little girl. So um, but that's 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 the one book that people say to me, "Ah, oh, I think you might have been a bit inspired by TV science fiction here. And I'm like, I don't think so. But it did, the idea did seem to click together so easily that I did wonder <laughs> whether whether it had been done somewhere before, but it, it doesn't appear to have been done. Uh, so wow. I'm just glad that for whatever reason, the pieces of the jigsaw, and it was like, I feel as though, I said having the parameters of the story, so I, I uh, the editor I had gave me the limitations of what mm-hmm. she wanted me to achieve, and that was enough for me to sort of say, okay, cool, this is where the story is going to fit into those limitations, and it was great, and I had great fun, um, coming up with characters like Millie, the the the, the maid in the house that uh, Tess ends up living in, um, and her important role in the story. Um, and I
0: love um, I love Miss Ackerby and Rebecca.
1: Miss Ackerby and Rebecca, yeah, yeah, they're I love them as well. Actually, they're really I just think. I love the idea of creating a, a children's home because Tess grows up in a in a in a children's home, which is based on a real building in Dublin that I, I love very much and I used to always admire when I went past it. Um and I loved the idea of creating a children's home where the people who ran it weren't cruel um, and who treated the children with love mm-hmm. and respect and gave them the freedom to develop into whatever they were going to develop into and a place where they were they were just cared for. Um, you know, because so many times you read about children's homes that are the opposite of that. Yeah. And our kids are are, you know. Are, are very badly treated and i just wanted to get away from that and to me miss and record were always kind and uh, and parental figures to the kids and um i have a very clear image of them in my head actually i can see them like old friends <laughs> you know um uh, so that was that was great i loved i loved imagining that i loved i loved peopling that beautiful building um uh, the the lafayette building is what it's called uh in in, our, in o'connell street in dublin i loved peopling that with you know the, the school, uh, putting putting the pupils in it and putting the staff in it, and having it as a, as a living, working, breathing, almost family home. When I think it's just it's only a premises, like it's only a, a an industrial premises at the moment, like or like shops or whatever are in it. So I loved putting a bit of life into that building, um, and imagining a Dublin, imagining a Dublin that is Dublin, but. But not, you know, imagining a Dublin, that's still part of the British Empire, I guess, because in, in mm. the book it's described, you know, you know, King George is still the king. um, uh, You know, there's 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 no Irish government as such. It's not Ireland. It's called Hibernia. It's part of the, you know, the the Britannian Empire uh, or the Britannian Islands, I think is, is what I call them. You know, so we have like Britannia and Hibernia, the two old names for for Ireland and Britain. um. You know and all, all the places are there they're all they're all in the same geographical locations as they are in real life but they all have different names yeah they've got these great um, alternate names
0: and Hurdleford, the <laughs> that's genius
1: <laughs> thank you very much it's the hurdle because as susan probably knows that the, the the uh the uh the the irish name for for dublin is is, is balia O'Clia, which translates into the town of the hurdled ford um, and that's why I called Dublin, Hurdleford in Sarsman Webb. So the, all the names are, they do have a relevance. They do have a reason why they're all called the different names I give them. Um, so that was fun. That was fun to come up with all these different names, either because of the Irish uh, names that they have or for, for you know, there's there's a place uh, as well. I, I, I talk about a Shell uh, Shalmelier's uh, Chalmalier, Key. And that's only because Shemalier is, is uh, has Wexford resonances, so that was personal mm-hmm. for me. <laughs> um, but everything, everything else, I think, is is to do with you know, there's there's re- there's a reference to Joyce. Um, you know, the the river is called the Plura, um, Yeah. because uh, I wanted to, I wanted to call it the, the Plura, the Plura Bell, is what the full name of it is. but that's obviously that's that's from uh from jo- joyce uh called the river liffey the annalivia Bell. and that's uh, why the river is called the plura so there's you know if it's you don't have to know these things to kind of i suppose
0: hopefully enjoy the story but, oh, but they um... give me this extra oh, when <laughs> i read know, it i was like there was all these little like easter eggs I was like, oh look at that <laughs>
1: <laughs> so i'm glad somebody picked up on it <laughs> um yes that that was fun i didn't i did enjoy that but it's funny because people say to me it's actually the stars mob has been my most successful book um in some in some by some metrics and um it's the one i feel the least i don't mean i don't love it because i do it's a story i'm very proud of but it's the one i feel the least personally connected to and it's funny it's funny possibly because i wrote it so quickly um Mm. and there was such a lot of pressure to get it done on time and also because i was under a lot of pressure personally at the time because i say I, i had a small small child and it was actually very hard time in my own life um. I actually don't really remember much about the process of writing it you know other than what I've said here because it kind of it was like a fugue state you know I kind of don't remember much about life back then it was all about. bit
0: much. well you don't when you've got a small child do you
1: yes exactly Um, so it is it is funny to me <clears throat> that it's the one that I, I I feel as though I could have done a better job of and and no. sometimes people say to me when they, when they say they enjoyed it I get embarrassed because I'm like oh god you know it's the one that I feel as though I really made a mess of
0: Um, absolutely not (laughs) thank you very
1: much (laughs) i'm glad you Um, enjoyed it
0: so and then and then the characters from the eye of the north started to call you back
1: (laughs) (laughs) this is funny because there was a day on twitter myself and the wonderful amazing Vashti hardy who i hope we will have on the pod at some stage uh, she and i were having this twitter discussion about how fun it would be to write a prequel to our existing books so she was she, we were just we were just talking we were just having fun um she was saying she'd love to write a story about the the parent the parents of her Brightstorm twins arthur and maudie and i said wouldn't that be amazing i'd love to write a prequel to to the eye of the north i'd love to write the story of you know Emmeline's parents uh, martin and louise or martin and eloise widget uh, and tell me tell about where they came from and i the next day then i got an email from the editor i had at the time at little tiger who said you know that prequel idea you were talking about on twitter do you really want to do that and i'm like uh eh okay I was only sort of you know messing but she said well I think we should do it to be a prequel to the eye of the north and I think it should not be um Emily's parents story but I think it should be the story of your character thing I'm
0: so and glad I said, she suggested oh that I love <laughs> thing so much I was so yeah. glad when I heard that I was gonna find out more about things backstory and Skyborn. it's just like everything I imagined it would be and more and it's set in a circus. Yeah. Why circus?
1: Why a circus? For the very simple reason that when I was writing the Eye of the North, I gave Thing a bit of a sketchy backstory and I just did said, you yeah, know, I grew up in a circus.
0: Did you know um, that? Before, did you know things backstory when you were writing Eye of the North?
1: Uh, I'd like to pretend that I had <laughs> this wonderfully overarching artistic vision and that it was all it fits, planned. Because
0: it fits so perfectly.
1: But no, it was purely just I thought when thing you see thing is one of these characters that came to me as though he were fully formed like he like I feel as though I could literally walk up to thing and shake his hand and go hey there you are you know you're you're as fully fleshed to me as any of my family because I cannot tell you where thing came from um thing because I said like at the beginning when we were talking about the idea of Emma Marvel and how she met a boy called Dayor on the boat, like literally um, he was just somebody who was there to fill a purpose. You know, I didn't know anything about Deor. I didn't know why he, he was called Deor. I didn't know why he had no name, but when it came to write Thing, Thing literally came out of my head onto the page and he didn't, he basically, he basically didn't change from, you know, he, his dialogue, um, his descriptions, mostly everything about him stayed more or less the same through I I think it was like 14 edits on the eye of the north between me editing myself and my agent editing with me to get a publisher and then the publisher editing it I think there was 14 drafts altogether um and thing was the one character like 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 the north star or like a pin in the paper that never moved he he was he was just always there um and I just feel as though um uh I, I wish I had had a reason for giving him the backstory I did but just when he came to me um I knew he had a had, uh, an abusive early life. I knew he had, had um a childhood where he wasn't loved, where he hadn't been nurtured, where he had been uh, neglected, where he had been abandoned, um, because that was the trauma that he carried mm. with him. Um and just for whatever reason, he because also he he was he is a character that has great acrobatic ability naturally. And it comes into it comes in handy when you know in the Eye of the North, he uses it to to help Emmeline. Um, and I knew there was a reason why he had that so when it came to writing the scenes where he remembers or he kind of sort of deals with the trauma he's been carrying and a circus setting seemed like a natural thing it seemed like a natural thing that he had been born in the circus that he had been an acrobatic child that he had been trained uh, that he had been abandoned um by the circus by his 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 family um and that he had been living on his own ever since and actually when when Katie um said to me we, we need to write this story I said oh my god that's amazing because I actually I would love to delve into this and see exactly where did the thing come from um and <clears throat> so when it came to kind of fleshing that out um the circus setting came to me really naturally because I love the circus and it was a place where my my parents every year um Fawcett Circus came to Gori and uh, my, my parents made a point to bringing my brother and me every single year when they came and it's they're still some of the vis- most visceral most powerful most you know, emotional memories of my my childhood, the magic, the spectacle, the scenery, the smells, the sounds, the sights, the 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 heat under the tent. All these things are so so real to me still, um, and also the, the the I suppose the beautiful fact that it was a family memory that my parents were with us. Yeah. you know, it was just it was just beautiful. It means so much to me. Um, and but it, it's not that I, I didn't read circus stories. It's Not it's not it's it's funny. It's it's all right. Because I was going to ask you of...
0: that because I read like Noel Strathfield circus stories and and yeah. circus stories and it's funny. Yeah, because it's it normally when I write a book or when I have a book that means you know
1: when there's something in a book that's a really emotional memory for me, it usually is because I read it in a book or because it's it's a book that I loved. But this is an, an actual lived memory of mine. Um, you know that's how much I loved circus because we we were there. You know that it's it's because we we went to the circus as, as kids um and so i was so happy to get back into that and to kind of immerse myself in my memories of of being at the circus and and how much it meant and trying to convey the magic of that um and it was great to get back to thing because i i just love him i love him like he was my own kid i love him like he was my own brother or whatever you know i i love him like he was part of my family because he just seems to me like a like a wonderful person like a wonderful character and i knew there was a reason why th- like thing is very loving he's very loyal Mm -hmm. and he's very brave and i knew there was a reason why he had all these qualities and why all these traits you know he's a child that's been abandoned a child that's been hurt a child that's been abused and neglected but also he was a child who also knew what it it felt like to be loved um and even though i knew he'd forgotten he had forgotten the person or he'd forgotten the people who had loved him i knew he his his heart remembered how it felt to be loved his heart remembered how it felt to have a family to have to have friends so i knew when I was going to write him in this in the circus that he had his abusive stepfather. He turned into a stepfather rather than a father. Uh that was an editorial decision made by by the team at Little Tiger. Um uh so it was a stepfather was the ringmaster who who was abusive in Skyborne, um the man who whose whose desire for fame and money and to be the greatest circus leader of all time you know leads to leads him to lose all his his loved ones and whatever um but he's the one who who is nasty and cruel to thing but he also has the love of cornelius craig uh who's the circus strongman um i
0: love
1: him i love him too there's a lot of my dad in him actually is there yeah that's that's the reason why he means so much to me i think um and uh so he he grows up where he lives with craig is like his guardian um and he also has all the, the love and companionship of all the other members of the members of the circus family um and also he has uh, he, the memories of his mother who has who who died when he was 3 but he remembers her um you know not 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 very clearly but he does remember her and he he gets more memories of her as he as he goes on so i loved that i loved uncovering um the reasons why, uh, why Bastian, as he's called in the book uh, in Skyborn, why he why he has so many memories of being loved, why he has that in his heart, why he's such a a kind and brave and loyal friend to Emmeline when he later meets her in the Eye of the North, and also why he has all these wonderful skills, um, including his his uh, his acrobatic ability, um, you know, and where he got those from, uh, because he's, he's he inherited them from his mother, but also he he sort of he learned them in the circus, um. But that, that story, I love The Eyes of the North. It's always going to be my, my, my first book baby. But I think actually I feel a more powerful emotional connection to Skyborne. There's something about that book that really just touches my heart. Uh, well, it's so full it. of
0: heart, that book. Well, all of your books, all of your books are so full of heart. But I think that one in particular is there's just such emotional depth and warmth. And I think one of the things that you are so brilliant at is Emotional relationships between characters, and one of the things that carries through in all of your novels is you've got these boy-girl couples. You've got these really quite like emotional boys and these brilliant, exuberant girls. And actually, I can I'm seeing now Anne of Green Gate where Anne of Green Gables is, it's (laughs) it's coming in or influencing. Um, But I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about those couple those boy girl couples that you have in all of your novels mm-hmm. well so far anyway though, so far I do I do I
1: do have an upcoming book which I can't speak of where uh, I, I don't actually have a boy character in it. um but but yeah no, that that was a that's a conscious thing insofar as I when I came up I suppose it, it comes from Emmeline and thing Emmeline was always going to be the uh she to me is, is is like me as a kid I mean I'm I'm a very emotional person but also I'm I'm quiet I'm shy I'm thoughtful I'm introverted I'm a person who kind of gets scared easily i'm a person who finds it hard to sort of um relax <laughs> um you know so to me there's a lot of there's a lot of me and Emmeline, and um she's she's kind of a cool rational logical scientific unemotional on the surface type person but underneath it all she has such a cauldron of 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 love and mm-hmm. and loyalty and 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 devotion to her, her family um and Ping was always going to be the foil to that. Like so he yeah. was always going to be the sort of the, you know, the, the exuberant, the happy, the happy go-lucky, whatever type. Um so that, that's where it came from them and their their great sort of dynamic. But I, I did actually consciously decide I wanted to write a story where the boy could be emotional, where it was, it was the boy character who had the, the deep emotional journey to go through, that he yeah. was the one who had the the previous sort of trauma to work through, that he was the one who had to be in touch with his emotions. Um, and that it was the girl who could, who could get to be the cool, rational hero a lot of the time. But at the same time, they rescue each other a lot as well. Yeah. There's no there isn't there isn't a damsel in distress and a hero boy or there isn't a, a boy in distress and a hero girl all the time. They they kind of work as a team. And then I consciously want to channel that as well in going forward into my into my other books. I wanted there to be girls who who you know had, you know, like in Skyborne, we have the character of Alice who has she also is dealing with a, a childhood or an earlier childhood upset or, or trauma that she's kind of trying to run away from. And, and then she has to deal with in the end. And um, so she has to go through that. But she's also brave and and courageous and full of vim and vigor, you know, and and drives. well. they're so
0: capable. I love that. And I think it wasn't it Paul Comey who yeah. said that about your your characters in your novels They're they're so brilliant and smart and capable. It's funny because I don't feel like that in my real life. So maybe I'm channeling my own desires
1: to be brilliant and smart and capable. You're channeling into my, a part of into yourself my kids. that is brilliant <laughs> and smart and capable. I don't know. Yeah, I sometimes feel like I'm living my life wondering when the grown ups are going to show up and tell me what to do. <laughs> you
0: like know, we we all feel like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that because sometimes I feel as though I'm the only one. Um, but Jenna, yeah, that, that's a that's a. I'm glad you picked up on that too. That's that's important to me.
0: How so? And time tight The time tighter is coming out next year is it february 2023 february the 2nd 2023 february the 2nd 2023
1: yeah which is is a pleasing it's a pleasing date 2223
0: i love that it's also the date that ulysses was published excellent even better joyce's birthday um and and your your book's forthcoming birthday how much of the time how much of the the story of the time tider can you give us some give us some hints give some spoilers i can't wait it's a great title Thank you very much. Well, the Time Tider again is one of those
1: books that uh has had a very long gestation. Um I can tell you exactly where I was and what I was doing <laughs> when I came up with the very beginnings of what would become the Time Tider. I was sitting in a place you know very well, Susan. Uh w- would have been uh, called uh, the Arts Cafe in UCD. Uh, oh such a seat often, of inspiration. <laughs> where we often had we often had many uh many, many a sit down there many a many a chat over coffee. Um, but I was sitting there one day having having lunch. Um it was during I say the early stages of my PhD so probably 2003-2004 I was sitting there having lunch one day and uh, I literally was eating a sandwich and I was reading a book by a man called Jacques Legoff and it's a book called uh, Time, Work and Culture in the Middle Ages and it's a story it's a, a medieval history text um, which is probably familiar to anybody who has done medieval history and in that book there is a section where Jacques Legoff talks about changing concepts around time and how it's measured when uh church towers and you know bells and clocks started to be, kind of become a, a common thing in the countryside mm-hmm. in in europe so where people would once have kind of worked you know with the sun they would have ro- risen when the sun rose they would have worked as long as they had light they would have gone home and when the, when it got dark they would have eaten when they got hungry you know now they were rising when the clock struck six now they were eating when the clock struck one now they were going home when the clock struck four or whatever it was and they oh, were, going to, an they were going to bed yeah so it, it was a massive cultural shift a massive um um cultural shift in 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 the ways we think about time um and I just I remember sitting in the in the cafe with literally a pencil I I think I had a pencil somewhere on my person I had no paper I had no notebook I had nothing I had uh, and I didn't want to I obviously wasn't going to write on the library book because it was a library book that I was reading (laughs) um and I all I had was like a one of the little yellow uh, customers customer feedback cards that used to get on, on the Arts Cafe. I was mostly mostly covered with printed material. You know, follow, tell us what you think about our services. There was like tiny, like an inch or two of, of blank yellow pay space. And I had my tiny little pencil and I remember writing in the tiniest language. I still have it. I still have this card. I saved it. It's in, it's in, a, in a folder somewhere. The tiniest letters. What if there was a way to you know what 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 if there was what if something happened to time when this change happened in the way we measure it and there was you know there was a pool of uncollected time had gathered and what if there was a way to 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 basically to harvest that time what what would we do with it you know and from the very earliest t- days of that story in my head it was called tider that was the name i had for it um, and so it's the Time tighter now. Is is the is the modern the the published iteration of it would be the Time tighter. But I've tried to write that story five times in the last twenty years. We'll say. Um, it's a story that's never. It was the it was the probably the, the first idea I had that really made me go, I really, really, really want to be a writer. This is something, this is a story I really want to tell, Um, you know, because I, I had the seeds of the Eye of the North already in my head. They were brewing away. I had written a memorial that was sitting in a plastic bag laughing at me. Um, mm-hmm. And this was, this was a story that really kind of kicked me into gear and said, you really have to write this. This is this is the story you need to write. And so for the last 20 years, I've been kind of hoping nobody, I remember one time I had a dream, actually a nightmare. I woke up in a in a lather of panic that Stephen King had written a book called Tiger <laughs> with exactly the same premises. What a nightmare. I to write. And I was like, oh my God, my entire life, all my dreams are gone. Um, but that didn't happen luckily. So um, uh, it's a story that I've always wanted to write and I've, I have tried to write it several times. But no matter what way I tried to manage try to get it done it never seemed to work so the setting was wrong or the characters were wrong or I, I had like again I, I wrote it first the first time I wrote it it was a, a YA novel um and you know the the character um had all these you know twistings and turnings of a love life and you know nas- nascent feelings for a boy blah, blah blah and I was like why am I writing this because I don't read I, I have no time whatsoever for romance novels I it's I just can't do it I have no romance whatsoever in my soul so why am I trying to write one? You know, because it was it was as awkward as I am myself. <laughs>
0: well I suppose it was the time like it was the time of YA, wasn't it? So well, it,
1: was this like... is it probably, yeah, you know. So I obviously I jumped that. That would have been in 2012-ish, as when I started try to try tried to do the first proper draft of Titer. So it had been sitting in my head for 10 years, even mm. at that stage um and it didn't work it, threw it out did another one where uh, i got about halfway through where there was a, it was a, i scaled the character back age wise made it into a middle grade novel but the setting was wrong uh because it was kind of a Victorian setting which worked up to a point then it fizzled out then I tried a modern set like a, a not a modern but a futuristic setting which also I actually got to the end of that draft but still it didn't it didn't work um that was the one that Holly my agent read I think she she has been with me through all the various different versions of, of Tider, trying to sort of get me to focus and actually get it written um but she's great so she I'm really glad to finally have a version that has worked that we can we can stand over um and then there was another version, uh, which was kind of like a, like an ancient Rome sort of a mm. Mediterranean sort of setting. I don't know where I came up with that one, but that was also junked. And then eventually, just when it came to sort of pitching my current publisher, Little Tiger, with uh, a fourth book, because I it's my my last book with them at for the moment anyway. Um, uh, this is this is I just said, look, I'm going to write this story. This is this is my opportunity to do it. Um, and. I came up just, I think it was, I wasn't quite in a dream, but it was kind of in a, like a vision of, I had this vision of a girl and her dad living in, in a van. And there was a scene where someone threw a brick through the window of their van. And that was all I had. But I said, this is it. This is my character. This is her dad. This is where they're living. This is where I need to be. So as soon as I had that, I just began it and uh, I didn't I, I the original draft of what, what what is now going to be published started with that scene where they woke up with the brick uh. in the through the window that doesn't it's not at the beginning now it's more it's more it's kind of a few chapters in but it is it is still there um and I just said to myself this is finally I finally have the right character I finally have the right time setting which is modern day Ireland I finally have the right mm, I finally have the right place to tell the story and the right you know so it's basically the story of, of a girl called Mara um, so it's like Mara M A R A, but it's pronounced more like the Irish word for sea. So you know Mara, um, and her dad Gabriel, and they live in a van. They've been, you know, they they're always on the move, and uh, and Gabriel has said it's because they're being pursued. Mara doesn't think he's she thinks he's a bit you know he's he's a bit paranoid for no real reason, mm-hmm. um, but she knows he does something very unusual with his his for his job. She he won't tell her what it is, um, he, she doesn't know why he has, uh, why he has to do the things he does. Um, And she's lots of unanswered questions and she comes to an age where she just basically says, I can't let him fob me off anymore. I need to find out the truth about what happened to my family. You know, her mother has has, has died. He has never told her the truth about that either. Um, So she wants to just find out the answers. And on her quest to find out the answers, she meets a boy called Jan. Jan van der Meer is his name. And I love Jan van der (laughs) Meer. That's a great name. Um, It's a great name. And uh, so they go off on a a great adventure. And (sighs) it's an adventure that could... Potentially spell the end of the time space continuum. Oh my on.
0: goodness! So, <laughs> so that's well, where the Time Trader came from. Sounds absolutely amazing, and I cannot wait to read it.
1: <laughs> well, it's and I think I'm gonna. I'm gonna it's... get a little
0: sneak peek before everybody else.
1: Uh, hopefully, yes, I'm gonna get you uh, get you proof so that you can read it and uh, tell everybody to get their copy on second of February next year. Um, yeah, no, it's. it's I'm really really glad that it's finally out of me i guess or out of my head you know Mm -hmm. that the story has been told because it it was something that it was it's a story that means a lot to me because like i say it's it's the first one that i really started fizz with excitement going oh my god this is an idea it's an idea that i've come up with myself it's an idea from my head that i've invented i need to tell it (laughs) and it's taken me all these years to do it um so just i guess the message here is never give up you know stick with it if you have an idea that you want to tell don't give up 'Cause eventually no eventually it might come to the point where you
0: find your you find the path that you're looking for to tell the story that you want to tell. Um, yeah, that's I think that's like the most fundamental brilliant writing advice. And it's I wanted I mean, I would talk to you forever. <laughs> I want to talk, I want to just continue <laughs> this conversation for like a week, but unfortunately we're going we to wrap start it up. wrapping it up. But but do you have any like I think this like it's been a brilliant insight into the behind the scenes of a writer's imagination and just how a book comes together, where the ideas come from, sometimes they have to kind of sit and percolate and sometimes they have to wait for the right setting sometimes they they've to it, it sounds like the characters are there um but they have to wait for the the characters are there and the story is there, but they, sometimes they have to wait for the right time or the right setting, mm-hmm. the right circumstances. Um, what do you have any advice for? For aspiring writers or or continuing writers?
1: Well, I always say to kids in school, and this is my advice for anybody who wants to write, I say, follow follow my ABC. My ABC is always be curious. Uh, That's the thing that drives me all the time. Uh, I have this insatiable curiosity, even this morning. Mm -hmm. I was coming home from dropping my my kid to school and I saw a crane in the distance and the the way the crane and the the top of the crane to me it looked like a dragon and a dragon's neck and I had this it just in my head a story came into my head of a dragon with an extra long neck who (laughs) uh who saves his fellow dragons from some kind of a disaster because they all sit on his neck they can't fly for some reason but I had this image like like a drawing in a book I could see this dragon with a And all these other little dragons, you know, cowering as they sit on, on this extra long neck as they all fly off to safety somewhere. And I just laughed to myself. and said, this is it. You know, this is this is what I mean by when I say always be curious. Look for stuff. There are stories everywhere. Mm. And, you know, and all you need, all you need is is the is the senses to take them in. You know, um, I always say to kids, whatever senses you've got, use them to the fullest extent you can every day. You know, take in the world as much as you can um, and, and, and question everything you see. Look at stuff and kind of wonder about it and wonder why is that there why is this here why is that color that color why is that lady wearing that hat you know who lives in that house you know that that kind of thing that that keeps me constantly wondering about the world and, and asking myself questions about the world um and always have a notebook you know with you to to write down your ideas because yeah always i i there's an idea that's bothering me I, I had an idea weeks ago and I didn't write it down because I was busy and it's annoying me because it's gone and oh, I can't no. get it back. And I can I can remember the bare edges of it and I can remember this, the flavor of it and how much I really wanted to make something of it. And I know it's gone and it's so no, no. frustrating and sad. No, but it's, it's gone to somebody because... else. I know, it's, I know it's Elizabeth Gilbert would
0: tell you it's gone to somebody
1: else and
0: I, <laughs> I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs> or it's like, like you've shown us with your like your brilliant process it's like or it's just it's it's waiting around there for the right time for the it's right like character to yeah it's, it's <laughs> over it's the airport there of somewhere. my brain yeah <laughs> yes, yeah I hope so
1: yeah I hope so um so yeah so oh, never never let your ideas go uh write them down and and get them on papers because you can or draw them or whatever whatever works for you um but in terms of actually making a career of writing the only thing I would say to you is uh is never give up I mean literally I remember somebody once telling me that the only thing that separates an aspiring author from an author is persistence Uh, Mm. and that is actually true um you know it's very difficult to believe in yourself all the time I struggle with it and I have struggled with it all my life but I I had enough belief in myself to 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 complete a draft in my in my early 20s that I knew wouldn't do anything except prove to me that I could write a book I had enough self-belief to give up a job (laughs) which I still can't believe I did to to write I mean I had the support of my 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 husband and I wouldn't have been able to do it without him um you know and that i am so grateful for i, I know i have uh, i live in a very privileged position of of uh of having had that support behind me to help me to to start this career um but you know you just sometimes you just have to take the chance and hope the universe catches you i guess or just do the work believe in the work and keep trying to get the work out there until somebody says, OK, cool. I, I like what you're doing. We're going to we're going to publish you. Um, just never, never give up and don't stop believing in yourself. Uh, don't stop believing. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> now, what I'm taking, I think what I'm taking away is like this image I have from a, this conversation is just like you have this kind of openness to story. And when you come across story, grab it and do not let go until exactly. it's yes. expressed itself be, be a sponge for stories because mm. they're everywhere and all you need to do is soak them
1: up you know they are it's true um, oh Sinead
0: so. I have loved talking to you about <laughs> all of your brilliant novels and about your process and about the way that you just like the brilliant way that you see stories in the world all around you all the time um, I think it's you've given some Amazing advice. I always be curious, never give up. I think let's tattoo these.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: on our knuckles. On our like, knuckles. Yeah.
1: <laughs> love, instead of instead it. of love, hate, we'll have a, we'll have a you know Always believe in yourself. <laughs> always never. be curious and never give up. Yeah.
0: And listeners, listeners, if there's any one of you out there that hasn't read Schneid's novels, go and buy them and read them because they are just the most thrilling, brilliant full of heart and warmth and love and wonder and excitement and the most gorgeous characters the most magical locations um and you'll fall oh. in love with Sinead's world and Sinead's brain in the way oh, that I have so Sinead thank you for talking you're to very you welcome and, and quickly your story shapes
1: briefly before we go as it's Irish book week and as you're an Irish author too I have to do a big big chat about susan uh, susan has her book coming out next year and um, the world between the rain and i've had a preview i've had a sneak peek of that too and uh, susan's book is absolutely exquisite and marvelous and i cannot wait until everybody can fall in love with it as much as i have it's amazing so it's coming next autumn from everything with words uh, and i can't wait till susan has her book on shelf beside mine i just it's going to be great yeah
0: i uh, can't quite believe it.
1: It's a privilege to have spoken to you today, and it's a privilege just to know you, Susan Kelly. <laughs> oh, we're
0: going to end in this love fest. You're
1: awesome. <laughs> I love you,
0: Sinead.
1: <laughs> but anyway, before we get too gushy, let's just uh, let's call it a day. Uh, thanks so much for this wonderful chat, and happy Irish Book Week, everybody. Uh, go happy and read an Irish, Irish person. Go week. and read an Irish book this week, uh, whether it's a book in Irish, whether it's a book by an Irish person, whether it's a book by uh, published by an Irish press, whatever it is. Go and do something Irish this week, and tell them tell them we sent you. And uh, we'll catch you again soon for another uh, episode of Story Shaped Podcast. So, slon before, Slon. Slán. <laughs> You've been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at StoryshapedPod, Pod. And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. Oh.